This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Today we have a very special episode of Self Work. It's a conversation that I had with the author of The Hilarious World of Depression, John Moe. John first got my attention when I became a podcaster and listened to his very popular podcast. What makes him unique and truly loved by his listeners is his transparency about his own depression as well as a very wry humor. After making a living as a comic, a writer, and then an NPR broadcaster, what he did was phenomenal. He faced his own illness and began to see similar behavior patterns and coping mechanisms when he was talking with others. He saw that there was tremendous comfort and community in talking about these experiences, and those include his own suicidal thoughts and the actual suicide of his older brother, Rick. He could also see that humor had a unique power And the podcast was born, again, The Hilarious World of Depression, which has had more than 10 million downloads. He's interviewed lots of celebrities, comedians, and mostly famous people who reveal their struggles to him quite candidly. And then there's always a laugh or something funny to balance things out. I found him smart, modest, and thoughtful. And he was more than willing to be interviewed by me, not the most accomplished of interviewers, as this was the first one I've done in literally years. So I was honored that he wanted to be a part of self-work. The episode is about twice as long as most self-work episodes, but I think you'll find that the time flies by. He's a warm and fascinating guy who's lived a lot of life and wants to share what he's learned. As a therapist, I wanted to know more about his depression rather than about the podcast or whatever, and my questions reflect that. If you've ever been depressed, lived through a complex family life, even wondered about how your depression might have been handed down to you within your family, what's termed transgenerational trauma, this is the episode for you. Come laugh, come learn, and come join me and John Moe for a discussion about learning to live with and manage chronic depression. As the author and blogger Jenny Lawson says in the credits, this book is an excellent life raft for those of us who are sure that we are alone in our struggles. You're far from alone. I strongly suggest that you buy the book as well. There's no way we could cover the entirety of how he wove his experiences together in a highly engaging story. In fact, my husband asked me what I was reading as I chuckled along, and when I said a book on depression, he looked at me if I were a little addled. You'll laugh as well, cry a bit, but you can find hope. It's on sale everywhere. And of course, that's one of the questions I forgot to ask him is where we could get it, but you can find it anywhere. But before we begin, we'll have a quick offer from BetterHelp, a regular sponsor of self-work. And then I'll introduce myself to John as I'm certainly not a celebrity, and I hope you enjoy listening. When I was approached by BetterHelp now several months ago, COVID hadn't emerged, and I'd maybe conducted a handful of telehealth sessions, mostly when someone was sick and couldn't make it into the office. Now, five months later, I'm even more of a believer in telehealth. It took some getting used to, but actually, clients sometimes seem more relaxed. It fits better into their schedule. And although many have told me they miss seeing me in person, it's still been a very fulfilling relationship. I've even started new patients 
and they've told me they had positive experiences, so we've never actually met in person. BetterHelp is rated the number one online therapy service that's available to you wherever you live. Confidential and highly personalized, it's much less expensive than normal talk therapy. You can text, have video chats, or just talk on the phone. You outline what you're looking for, and BetterHelp suggests several therapist options for you. If you don't seem to find a way to connect with one, they'll ask you more about what you're looking for and then suggest others. I, of course, tried it out before I was going to recommend it to you, and the two therapists I had sessions with listened well and made great suggestions for me, and one said, actually, I might make myself. I talked about my own panic disorder and a very scary situation I'd been through, and they were caring and thoughtful. And I was amazed at how easy it was to get in touch with them to make time changes, for example. Although BetterHelp can't be there in emergencies, nor could any online provider, they have all kinds of information about what you can do in that special circumstance. And today, BetterHelp has a great savings offer for you. If you use the link trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork, again, that's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork, you can enjoy a 10% discount on your first month of sessions. After five months of seeing how people relate to telehealth, I'd highly recommend it. If self-work has helped you, maybe BetterHelp can give you an even more personal experience with therapy. Hi, John. Hello. Hi, I'm so delighted you're here. I'm Margaret Rutherford. Margaret, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You were talking about how excited you were to interview Dick Cabot. Well, I sort of feel that way about you. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's flat. I so love the book. And, you know, I'm a psychologist and was reading it with all kinds of memories of other people that I'd worked with and how they talked about it. And I was just impressed by its poignance and humility and just a comfort, it would seem, with you know, your own sort of self-exposure. So I am, I really admire that. And I think it's the way to go. I think that we in mental health need to reflect that ourselves and who we are. So anyway, I. Thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it means a lot when those ideas come from people within the the healthcare, mental healthcare establishment. The first draft of the book, it was very short on like analysis of what depression is. And both my editor and my therapist said, dude, you've done the research. It's okay to, to offer your thoughts on how this works. So I'm like, I'm not a therapist. They're like, you, you've done plenty. Don't worry. Yeah, uh, You don't have to have those letters after your name to, to know right. yeah, what's going on. In fact, I noticed you're actually very kind to therapists. You oh, know, yeah. Nobody tried to have sex with you. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't lay on any couches. No. Well, a lot of, you know, books are not all that kind of therapists. So that yeah. certainly struck me. Well, what I wanted to do was not necessarily talk as much. I have one process oriented question, but I really wanted to delve a little more deeply into the content and I will have a suicide prevention hotline number all over the place. So when we do this, but you know, the, really the only, again, process oriented question I have is this, if we can just kind of get into it, 
You know, one of the few things I remember from graduate school is a study about what happens when you actually study something and it changes the something that you're studying. I've forgotten what it's called, some fancy something, but Heisenberg principle, isn't it? Is that what it is? I think so. Okay. But I wondered how your own understanding of your depression or depression itself changed by writing about it. You weren't journaling necessarily, but you were trying to explain it. Even like you said, your therapist and your editor said, we want to hear your definitions and your descriptions because they're coming from you and that's important. Did it change at all as you wrote? Absolutely. The book is sort of a a minor character in the book because I don't think I would have gotten to the understandings uh, that I did without taking the time to write about them extensively. The first draft I wrote of the book was basically every time depression intersected in my life. And to that end, the first draft was around 180,000 words, which oh, gosh. <laughs> 650 pages or something, which is, you know, maybe Carl Ove Knausgaard could pull that off, but I, I don't think I could. And so then it was a matter of trimming back. But, but when I was doing that, it was interesting how many things connected. Uh, you know, I'd be writing about something that happened when I was 40, and I saw how that was informed by something that happened when I was 25, which is informed by something that happened when I was 12 or six. And so it started to connect a lot more. And I had been under the impression, under the, the sort of uninformed belief really that depression could come about either as a result of trauma or just a randomly occurring struck by lightning kind of thing. Um, over the course of the book, I tilted heavily towards the trauma side. And, and there is such a thing as an inherited trauma. And so I write in the book about how my, my parents were children when they're in Norway when their country was invaded by the Nazis. And life itself became uncertain, you know, whether life would continue or not. And there was death all around them. And there was no safety whatsoever. And they had kids and and the youngest was me. And so there is no way now I think that, that that doesn't get passed on. Intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, my dad, there was no therapy to go to when he was a kid and the way that people, and especially men in his culture dealt with all this was alcohol and cigarettes and, and distancing themselves from people around them. Um, it was just the way it was done. And so that's what he did. And so that trauma leads to alcohol in my family. And that leads to a, a remoteness and an unreachability by him. And so then through therapy and through writing the book, I start to connect like, okay, I was scared for a lot of my life because I wasn't able to depend on things. I wasn't able to depend on a certain behavior, a certain support, and I'm not blaming him for the illness that he had. And so then when you start to say, okay, why am I catastrophizing right now? Why am I in despair about the future? Why is the anxiety so overwhelming? Why is the, why is the, depression outlook so bleak? Well, because I don't have anything to fall back on. And it's not a matter of like, oh, you know, 
get in touch with the pain of your childhood. I mean, sure, get in touch with that, but it let me say, oh, okay, this is where it's coming from. This despair, this worry, this uh, bleakness isn't from nothing. There was an incident, but writing the book let me get that full narrative and the therapy, let me get that full narrative to connect those things. Yeah, that's very powerful. I, I have my patients do what's called a trauma timeline, and that's one of the purposes of it is to connect the dots between, you know, what was going on when you were four and what was going on when you were 24 and what was going on when you're 44. So, and there, there definitely is this sense of legacy mm-hmm. and you're right. It's, I have definitely moved into much more of a trauma. I've been a therapist over 25 years. So yeah, even if it's quote unquote little T trauma, meaning that it's not maybe even considered by the person as trauma, but yeah. Well, I, I didn't even know there was such a thing as complex trauma. I always thought trauma was like you're in a car crash. You know, you see someone get killed, like, you know, a major, an, event. an event, a catastrophic event. And I've had those. But like growing up with an alcoholic parent is a is a complex trauma. Like right. it can be stretched out over a long period of time and it's still trauma. I mean, all the... You know, it, the effect is the same. I write in the book about getting hit by a car in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's affected me. And at the time, it just seemed weird. And the weirdest part about it was that everybody just continued on with <laughs> their lives. <laughs> but I know it's affected me. I still don't know how. I mean, that's that's the the frustrating conundrum, the puzzle of this whole thing is like there is no... You can't pop the hood and look at how the wires are connected. Right. You have to really uh, kind of piece it together. That's interesting. Well, I'm not surprised that it's changed and morphed and you've grown in sort of a an appreciation of its tenacity and its connections. And and you're right. It's not random. I mean, it's it's very distinct and usually may take you some time to discern what it is, but there's something. And so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You were aware of being something. You didn't call it depression, Mm -hmm. but of not being right since you were very young. Mm -hmm. You talked a lot about crying a lot and that in the eighth grade, you sought counseling at the school. And I think you told your mom that you needed counseling at one point. And I just was struck by, because on the outside, you were winning elections, you were popular, which you said you didn't really even remember until you you were writing the book. You said, I think your senior prom date or something said, you know, I wanted to go to prom. You were were well regarded. You were very popular. I was, I was, I was elected uh, speaker for my senior class in high school, but I was, you know, the depression has a, a retroactive filter. And so you, you go back and you remember the pain. And so I remember all these horrible things. And I, and I talk about how reflexively I talk about how horrible it was, but there were, yeah, there, there was every evidence that I was well-liked and, and respected, uh, never quite understood, but it was there. And yeah. And, and, my first forays into into therapy, really, I was talking to my mom the other day. She's 85 now. And, you know, she was very nervous about this book coming out. Oh, yeah. She, you know, <laughs> it's not her 
culture. It's not her world to talk about these things in public. So she was very scared. And I, I said, well, there's no bad guys or good guys for that matter in the book. There's just people. Acknowledgement. Yeah. And, uh, but she defied all culture by saying, let's get you to a therapist. You know, let's, let's bring you in and talk to someone, which I say in the book is kind of like if you're raised strict Catholic and your mom says, let's head down to the mosque and see what the imam thinks of all this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I really noticed that. And it was especially that in your family, so many other problems, your dad's addictions and your brother's burgeoning addiction as well was just not talked about and not addressed. And as you say, that's the Norwegian way. And yet it was striking to me that your mom saw something in you that she said, this is more dangerous or something got her attention about it. Yeah. I mean, I was the extrovert in the family. Yeah. Um, I, I always say like, it's it's as if there was a baby swap with an Italian couple at the hospital or something because <laughs> I was always the loud mouth. And I think that we all, in my family, we all had different coping mechanisms. And so my sisters became much more reclusive and academic. And um, my brother, you know, started smoking dope and, uh, and doing drugs. And we all kind of did this thing on our own. My way of getting the attention that I couldn't get in the family, you know, family of four, is I figured out early on that I had a knack for acting. I was pretty good at it. And my parents had been, don't get into this much in the book, but my parents had been actors in Norway. Really? They immigrated to America. Yeah, they met when my dad cast my mom in a play. Oh, wow. Great. So then they gave it up for jobs that, you know, were just more traditional American jobs. And so I thought, well, I, I'll act I'll get the attention from that. I mean, and, and then I'll I'll please them because they don't get to do this anymore. And so then they'll they'll like me. Yeah, they'll live through me and that makes me happy. Right. And you know, and theater is perfect because you you know exactly what you're gonna say on stage. You understand and have discussed all the relationships with everybody. You know what they're going to say, you know how they're gonna act. Yeah. The audience will laugh in appreciation and at the end they'll clap. And, you know, it's the perfect storm. Like it's, you know, it's so much better. The only thing that it's not is life. And that's fine because (laughs) that part is scary. Yeah, I've done some theater myself and I was a professional musician in my 20s. So you and I have some things in common. And one of the stories before we get off your childhood that I just adored, I was the youngest in my family too. And so I especially had a sense of what this was like for you because it's a story about when your brother got a cassette player, I think, and that Mm y'all would do these little plays. And it was a very uh, tender kind of memory in that you said you just felt so important that all the siblings were invested in some way in getting this play on tape or something. And it was, and you, so you were going, let's do it again tonight. And they go, no. And so but that yeah. was just, it was sort of a one or two shot deal. We would, <laughs> we would make these. Um, my, my brother Rick got a, a tape recorder. And so my oldest sister, Madlena would sort of direct and organize and outline what we were going to perform. So that was her job. Mm-hmm. And then Rick would hold the tape recorder because it was He's his. The engineer. <laughs> he was the engineer and he'd do sound effects. My sister, Lisbeth, who we would all lose tease about being perfect in every way because she was poised and got good grades. So she would, would always play the unfortunate heroine who <laughs> great harm befell. And then 
that left all the funny character parts for me. And so, yeah, it was like we were together, we were making something, our parents weren't there. And so if I had my way, we'd do it every single night. But I think we did it two or three times. Yeah. All the older kids got too embarrassed and wanted to go off with their friends. <laughs> well, it was a very, very, just I smiled when I read it. The other thing I really just burst out laughing when you were talking about that everybody you talked to thought that the nuclear weapons were going to kill them first. Because I also grew up in a town in southern Arkansas that had a biologic warfare plant oh. and we practiced going under the house i'm not sure what going under the house would have done but that's what we practiced. Yeah. <laughs> and i was you know kind of had this threat of Ooh, maybe tomorrow you know so it was kind of wild yeah. yeah and the the odd comfort that everybody i knew took no matter where they grew up in america that this sort of egotistical comfort that, oh, where I live is most important. And so we'll be right <laughs> off the map. For, we won't feel a thing. And what I talk about in the book is everybody I know, no matter where they live in America, was convinced it was them. My, my wife was convinced it was going to be in her suburb of Chicago, specifically at the department store on the corner of Lake and Harlem. <laughs> that was, I don't know where she got this. One specific department store is where the first missile would hit. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I really just, I mean, I burst out laughing. My husband was going, what are you reading? <laughs> depression. Yeah, it's a book about depression. So one of the things that I also just noticed, I want to get into the depression, but how your life seemed to flow from you being an actor to being a comic to being a writer and then a podcaster. I think that's the right order. And so broadcaster than podcaster. Okay. So did all that just sort of make sense to you or did you have a sense of, I kind of know where I'm going to go or did you just say, well, this isn't working. So um, I'll need to do this. It happened. It seemed very serendipitous and accidental. Okay. And so I figured I would be an actor because that's what people responded to early on, Mm -hmm. even though I really like to write even a little bit more. And so then in adulthood, I don't know if you've heard, but it's hard to make a living. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of stopped loving it as much as I did, Uh, but I really loved writing. And so things would happen in my life where I would find myself writing for a particular outlet. And then that led to somebody being interested in me doing something else somewhere else. And I'd say, oh, okay, let's talk to you about that. Oh, that seems like a good situation. I'll do that. And then that led to another thing. And, and before I knew it, I was, I was on the radio and do, you know, doing public radio. And it always seemed to me like, boy, I got lucky. I really, yeah. I stumbled into that thing. And, you know, to an extent, a little bit of imposter syndrome, like I sure fooled them. Um, you know, <laughs> they must be really desperate. And, you know, to that end, like after a while, I'm like, you know, these people were dumb enough to hire me. I better not. I don't want to be a part of any club that would have me as a member. You know, it wasn't until much later that I thought, well, no, I was, I was qualified for those things. I, it made perfect sense that they would want me to do those things. And some of them I pursued and some of them just came to me. But what happens with depression is you get such a diminished view of yourself that you forget that there's a self in yes. And so you think you're just sort of drifting through the world, but, you know, and having some experiences without realizing the experiences are, are valuable and, and they build skills. 
And so it, it's something I still forget. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, right now I'm talking about the book a lot. I'm looking for a new home to do a podcast in, and there's a lot of interest. And part of me still thinks, well, God, I, you know, I must have done something to, you know, these people to make them be interested. And then friends that I have, like mentors that I have say, well, of course they're interested, you idiot. <laughs> you know, so you worked your butt off, yeah. Right. The career path has never made sense to me unless I work at it, unless I work to make those connections. And, and that's what a lot of depression post-therapy is, is like you get the impulse thoughts of, oh, I'm, I'm worthless. There must be some other explanation for this. And then you just have to go through a conscious effort to say, oh, no, let's see what's happening here. Let's break this down. Let's review the game film sure. and talk about how this happened. So, yeah, it involves more work, but it involves, you know, better health also. Yeah. I tend to jump into the deep end myself, just kind of, well, I, I can swim. And so, yeah. yeah, you know, this story about Dr. Kovac is hilarious. Kovar, not Kovac, Kovar. He said he was the clinician that diagnosed you with depression. And you said, come on, how can you tell me I'm depressed just by asking me a few questions? He said, oh, no, I knew it the second I saw you. The questions and stuff were to make sure and to be polite. (laughs) And then he says, you're even kind of boring from a diagnostic point of view. You had to get the only doctor in Seattle that actually had a sense of humor, I guess. But... (laughs) (laughs) But then it was interesting to me that, okay, this huge relief came. One, sometimes, at least when I suggest to someone that they're fit criteria for depression, they don't want to believe that, maybe because of stigma, maybe because of not wanting to give it a name. And yet you had the experience of, finally, I've got a name for this, and it was a relief to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I was thrilled. You were how old? I was in my mid-30s, probably 36, maybe. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I had been, I'd never been diagnosed. I'd always, I just sort of thought of it as a weirdness. Like, oh, I just have, I'm just weird. And, you know, when I started really kind of breaking down, because I I have a depression that connects to stress. So when the going gets tough, I go to pieces. And, you know, at that point, I had a job that I, I took very seriously. I had a career. I had, I owned a house. I was married. We had kids. And, you know, pressure's on, right? And I started to kind of break down. And my wife said, hey, you should go to a doctor and get this checked out. I think you're depressed medically, like clinically depressed. I didn't want to go because it was, I didn't want to waste the doctor's time. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to pay the $10 copay that we had at the time. I wasn't worth the Hamilton. (laughs) Um, And so when I got diagnosed, I kind of realized, oh, this is a thing that I have. Yeah. This isn't a thing that I am. I'm not acting like this because I'm cowardly or weak. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. And, and as soon as he told me that you've probably had a uh, you know disorder for decades, in the next breath, he said, there's a lot of ways we can address this. And nothing works for everybody, but usually something can be found that'll work. Interesting that you did not follow his suggestions. Uh, yeah, I mean, he gave me a prescription, the Zoloft that I took, I reacted badly to. So I thought, oh, all meds are bad. Yeah. It's kind of like going on one date and then dismissing, <laughs> you know, romance entirely. Um, but I thought, well, I know what I have. So that's, that's enough. I know that it's a disorder. And so I'll just think of it as a disorder 
and I, I mistook diagnosis for cure because again, it's the diminished self. Like I am not worthy of any kind of aggressive treatment and you know, I'm incapable of really addressing it. So I'll just decide that it's figured out. That means the same thing as, as being solved. Yes. You know, and, and I think that's what a lot of people don't get about meds or therapy or any kind of treatment for depression is that it's not something that's done to you. No. You're, you're a collaborator on a project. Exactly. And so a therapist can help you unlock the incidents of your past. Uh, a doctor can help you uh, understand your reaction to what's in a med, but, but you, the patient, need to be driving this and, and working so hard. Like at the end of a therapy session, when I feel completely exhausted and ready for a nap, I know it went well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. Because it is, it is a collaboration. Mm-hmm. So I want to move into you actually growing suicidal and how you handle that. And the way you described you went up to Aurora Bridge, I think it's the name of it, and you talked about that people think that barriers shouldn't be on bridges because it's a waste of money. And you said sometimes you just have to give someone a moment to reconsider. And that barrier or, you know, my take on it was, can't we all sort of feel as if we're paying attention, we can act as the moment, you know, we can maybe have a piece of conversation or some kind of relationship with someone that asks them to reconsider. And they may never even tell us they're suicidal, but something about that interaction can dislodge mm-hmm. their immediate need to do something like that. And you said there were three reasons why you didn't, your wife, who you knew would be more than heartbroken. The second one was that it was scary. <laughs> it was just plain scary. And then the third was that it would be doing something. And you were at the point of still a lot of passivity. So I just thought that was interesting. And they teach us in graduate school that the most important question to ask when someone is sitting in front of you and is suicidal is to say, who are your connections? Mm -hmm. Who knows you? Who would be there for you? And if they say no one, then your concern ramps up a lot. Yeah. Well, it's hard too with depression because you uh, discount the people who are there for you. You, you dismiss them as, uh, well, they don't really know me. They don't really care. Or I'm, I'm such a lousy person. Their purported love and caring for me can't be real because I know I'm not worthy of that. Yes, yes, right. Yeah. And yet your brother, Rick, actually did die by suicide many years after the, the Aurora Bridge incident, right? For the Aurora Bridge incident, I didn't peg it to a specific time. Okay. One, because I didn't want people around me, you know, who were around me during that time to feel like they missed something or they didn't, you know, or that they were the the cause of uh, that low point. But also to to dismiss the idea of a primary cause. Like I always bristle, I don't know if you do, but I always bristle when at the phrase drove someone to suicide. Oh, I can't stand it. You know, because it's not like that. It's not a reaction to a particular event. It's a mental illness, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a, a particularly bad instance of a mental illness. I wanted to get rid of the idea that something was primarily at the cause. So I put it certainly at a time when I was married, but I left it open and I'll never tell whether it happened when I was 28 or 39 or whatever. Yeah. 
Well, I did notice the boundaries you set. There were some things you just weren't going to talk about, and it sounds like this is another incident of that. And I admired that. I mean, you were very open about your disease, and yet there were some things you were not going to talk about and not share in this memoir. Is that to, <laughs> to know where your boundaries are? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you used an interesting phrase. You said you had normalized thinking about suicide. And when someone says to me, I'm no longer afraid of it, again, my warning bells go off big time for me. But when they're in front of me and they say, but I couldn't do it because I'd be too scared or I couldn't do it because I feel a little bit better. But what did you mean when you said you'd normalized suicidal ideation? I think if you've gone to a certain place in your mind where that enters the picture, then it's almost like I was talking with um, my friend Anna Marie Cox, um, the writer, and we compared it to like an off-ramp of a freeway, right? And so life is the freeway, and you see this off-ramp that you never noticed before on your regular drive. I'm like, oh, I can turn off there? You know, hardly anybody does because they don't see it. But like you see, you see this door to Narnia in your closet that was there before. Choose your analogy. And um, and so I was aware of it from high school when the thought first really crossed my mind, mm-hmm. and then it flared up a few more times over the years. And so it's a matter like then as a person who has been through suicidal ideation. I think it become like a new responsibility has been handed to you. Mm-hmm. Like it's incumbent upon you to understand that, to understand where it's coming from, what that impulse means. And I write about it in the book, like any lingering thought I had after the bridge incident was eradicated after my brother died by suicide. Yes, I know. And I saw what it meant to everybody he left behind. And I thought about what it meant for and he had struggled with addiction his whole life, mm-hmm. how all his futures were eliminated, all hope of getting better. It's, it's the paradox of, of suicide. It's like you want relief from the pain and you're not going to get relief because there's no you left to get it. Right, exactly. And then, you know, I had, I had two kids at the time. Rick died. I have three kids now. And I just knew, oh, I, that's completely off the table. I, I, can, never, I can never do that. And it was such a comfort <laughs> that it's, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that exit ramp got boarded up for good. I still see the exit ramp, but sure. no longer exit. <laughs> sure. There's a very lofty sounding statement in the book, in the section where you talk about if I could just do X, Y, or Z and I'd feel better. You say the undue idealization with which the depressed person sees the post achievement future is matched by real scorn for the present. Mm-hmm. It was the word scorn that was a flashing light to me. It was just such a good word for what I hear from people with depression that they just annihilate themselves mm-hmm. with their present and wishing, like you say, if I could just do this, if I could just do that. It's surprising to me for how many people that was really a revelation for, that they had never thought of the idea of achieving your way out of depression. Yeah. You know, if I get this girl to go out with me, if I get this promotion, if I get this award, you know, nobody who's depressed could possibly be depressed after that. And so then it happens and then 
doesn't go away. That was a real shock for a lot of people that I talked to because, again, the diminished self, they're pinning their self-regard on somebody else because they can't generate it for themselves. Or something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not good enough on their own. They're not a person enough to be deserving of health, love, appreciation, whatever it is. I've been doing virtual book tour events. And uh, over the years, I've fallen into a friendship with, no, not fallen into, earned a friendship. (laughs) There you go. Through my, through my personality and thoughts um, <laughs> with a guy named Sean Doolittle. And Sean is a pitcher for the Washington Nationals. And he was basically the, the hero of the World Series that his team won last fall. And I was talking with him about this at one of these events. And he said, you know, I thought that if I could make it to the major leagues, I'd have it made. You know, I'd be making money. I'd be like clearly the best in my profession if I'm in the major leagues. Well, if I could just make an all-star team, you know, then I'll feel great. If I could make a second all-star team, (laughs) I'll feel great. Makes a second all-star team. Maybe if I could make it to the World Series, imagine makes it to the World Series. Like his pitching allows his team to win the World Series. He gets the ring on the field. Sure. Afterwards, he's like, damn, that didn't work either. (laughs) You know, but you know, that's a very despairing feeling when you're chasing after something that then you taint it or you earn it or you whatever. And then it turns out to be not what you thought it would be. It wasn't in there. Like that's not what it was. I found out not long ago that, Kevin Love, who's an NBA player, you know, all-star NBA player, was giving a speech and he said, it's so important to tell your own story and, and find stories you relate to. One of my favorite books is The Hilarious World of Depression by John Moe. I'm like, what the hell do I have in common with a seven-foot-tall millionaire who's been celebrated his whole life? And I, I you know, talked with Kevin briefly about it. He's like, no, I just related to everything you were saying. Yeah. So it's universal thing yeah i thought jenny lawson's comment was funny on the back of the book she goes i was screaming yes this is it this is it and her husband said what what are you doing (laughs) i just wrote a book about perfectly hidden depression and it's about this presentation of depression that's is very much into the next goal will make me happy the next goal i will finally be all right and so yeah so as a therapist people call me direct in fact, one young girl said to me one time, well, you don't do that unconditional love thing. <laughs> I'm not sure that was passive aggressiveness or what it was. <laughs> what yeah, it was. Let's talk about why you say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I love the section on, you know, what are the things you can do to help yourself that aren't medicine, aren't therapy, aren't exercise, aren't your traditional things that everybody trots out as helpful for depression. They are helpful for depression. Again, as you said a few minutes ago, it's not that everything will work for everyone. Mm-hmm. But how did you come upon that list? Because it's like dogs are on it. Being in a band is on it. Um, videos. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm a believer in, you know, like I would be terrible at starting a cult. I don't think I could start a cult. I don't, I don't think I could be guru to anybody because I could never say this is the way. You must follow this specific way and do these things. Right. Because it's such a mess. I mean, there 
you'll find things that work for you. And it's part of why, what I try to do on the podcast is like, I'm going to talk about what, you know, what works for different people. And mm -hmm. with the caveat that this may or may not work for you, probably won't. But, you know, here's 30 ideas. Maybe you'll find three that work. Try this out. It's better than doing nothing. Yeah. And so, and I, but I think it's also important to do a self-evaluation. Like, where do you find peace? Where do you find relief from something, a respite? And, and so, yeah, I write, about, I write about my dogs who exist perfectly in the moment. Like, the thing you try to get to with meditation is how dogs live all the time. <laughs> and so they're kind of heroes. You know, I've been in bands for years. We have put out one album, my band. It's never going to be our job. We're never going to be famous. But sure. we, it's like some people are with bowling leagues. We are with a band. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of things I didn't put in there, like the cartoon Adventure Time or seeing a movie in an out-of-town cinema. Just things you can do that take you out of yourself for a moment. Sure. That chapter alone could have been, you know, 300 pages. Um, <laughs> Sounds like maybe initially it was. <laughs> right. I wanted to encourage everybody to kind of do that inventory. And it's not necessarily going out and discovering something, but it's about like, oh, what has al always brought me into the present? Not necessarily happy. Happy is a result. Happy is one of many emotions you can have. But what has brought you into the current moment as opposed to worrying about the past or the future. Yes. I've heard a saying all my life, if you've got one foot in the past and the other in the future, you're pissing on today. <laughs> so. Good one. Good one. I'm from Arkansas. You must. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the last question I've read that because of funding and all that kind of thing, that the hilarious world of depression isn't going to be where it was. Are you in yeah. a place to talk to us about where you're going or what's happening? Um, there's a lot of opportunity. Okay, <laughs> good for you. That's about all I can say right now. I'm committed to continuing to do podcasts, do conversations, because I think it's the most intimate way I can think of to reach people. Something I've always liked about podcasts, even more than radio, and I've done a lot of radio, is that if you're listening to me on a podcast, then I'm in your car with you. Yes. I'm in headphones with you. We are as close as we can be. And the way I've always approached that kind of you know, radio work or podcast work is imagining myself at a kitchen table explaining something to my wife. Yeah. You know, or having a conversation with this person I'm interviewing over a cup of coffee. You know, not even at a coffee shop, like in my kitchen. And so that's going to be part of it. I'm working on a bunch of different ideas on, on books, figuring out where I'm going to go next with that. I'll continue to give speeches. Like I'm, I'm suddenly have a schedule filling up with speeches for just virtual events where I can sit here. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, I'm looking for a bunch of ways to, to do a bunch of things, but you'll be, you'll be hearing from me in expected venues soon. Okay. How's that answer? <laughs> well, you know, again, I'm sort of I'm noting that it sounds like you're giving yourself credit for what you have built. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts as well, and the depth at which you're, the people you're interviewing, your interviewees, I guess, mm -hmm. they really, you know, some of them go very, very deeply into who they are and what made them who they are and it's called The Hilarious World of Depression for anyone who wants to check it out. And so that's the same book title. Mm -hmm. And 
I appreciate you being with me today. You know, my podcast is usually I don't do interviews. I think I said that at the very beginning, but I saw your name and I thought, no, 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 I got to do this. one. <laughs> no, it's, it's really been, been an honor and a, and a pleasure. And thanks for the depths of the questions that, that you go to. It's whenever I do interviews, people say, how do you build up the nerve to ask people those questions? My mom says, do people ever get mad at you for asking questions? <laughs> like, no, mom, they don't because they know what show they're on. But people say, how, you know, how do you work up the nerve? How do you go that deep? And I always say, I, I forget that I'm not supposed to. <laughs> I, just, I, have to I have to be careful as a therapist because I will ask people questions that really I shouldn't at some part. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I'm like, you know, when you spend all day thinking about this stuff, you ask those questions because like, oh, yeah, I just want to know. But I never make notes or anything. I just walk into a room with somebody and start going. Well, it's been my honor as well, John, and I so appreciate it. And I've already talked about the book on my podcast. So anyway, I uh, do appreciate it. And I will be waiting to see what's next for you. So I'm excited about that. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Very, very much. Thank you so much for joining me today at Self Work for this very special episode, a conversation with John Moe. I hope you learned a lot, laughed a lot. You can reach me in lots of ways. DrMargaretRutherford.com is my website, and you can subscribe there and get a weekly newsletter that has my blog post and podcast in it. So it's a really easy way to keep in touch with me. I'm over on Instagram at drmargaretrutherford.com, and I have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. You can always email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Again, thank you for being here. Take very good care. Stay safe and sane. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.